Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, this is, uh, we're getting in, well, we're finishing up the Lord's Prayer, but the request that's before us, uh, the request that God would not lead us into temptation, is one of those requests that seems a little bit complicated because we know James tells us that if we sin, we cannot say that it is God who has tempted us and made us sin. However, when we make this request by Christ's instruction, it sounds as if we are those who are actually being tempted by God because we're asking him not to tempt us. So it's one of those things, again, where you hear this and you kind of think, well, is the scripture contradicting itself? Why does Christ teach us one thing? Why does James tell us something else? Does that mean that maybe James doesn't belong in the scriptures after all? Uh, or are we misunderstanding the whole discussion? Which again, you can imagine where I'm going, uh, that we're probably misunderstanding that discussion. And so what does it fundamentally mean that God is one who doesn't tempt us, as James says, but then we follow the example and command of Christ where he commands us to pray, lead us not into temptation. How do we reconcile these two things uh, that are held out for us in Scripture? So as we consider this, we'll look at how the Catechism lays out our adversaries first, uh, those things that are going against us, trying to interrupt and destroy our faith, and secondly, our advocate, uh, how we find our life uh, ultimately in Christ. And so let's begin then with our adversaries. Well, the catechism is not very optimistic about the human condition uh, when we read this. It tells us that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment. And you think about that, that wording. That the catechism is telling us that if we were left to ourselves, we wouldn't desire the Lord, we wouldn't desire the things of God, in fact, we would desire our sin, and we want to just continue to uh, fall into it and pursue it more and more, no matter how detrimental or harmful it might be for us. And that's a pretty grim picture of the human race, uh, to lay out that truth that's held out for us. And so really, this is telling us that, that we're in a very horrible situation in a post-fall world. But there's something else. There are sworn enemies. So it's not only that we, if we're left to ourselves and our own devices, would fall and stumble, but it says the devil. The devil being the adversary, the accuser. Uh, we read of him in Scripture. Certainly one who desires to go against the Lord's purpose. Uh, we've said it before that if Satan could pick one, uh, one of the elect out of the hand of the Father, he's discredited all of redemption. If he can make Christ stumble at one moment in his ministry, he would have discredited all of redemption. So you can understand why Satan worked so hard in the ministry of Christ uh, to try and trip him up in several places. 
why he works so hard to try and destroy us. It's not so much about us as it is about him gaining the upper hand over God and showing he's truly more sovereign than God himself. The other enemy we have is the world. So we think about the world. Uh, this can actually be a twofold thing going on. On the one hand, we certainly know of the temptations that surround us when we look around in the world, uh, things that might seem very alluring or pleasurable or enjoyable, and think that those sorts of things would truly give us joy. And so there's temptations along those lines. We can think of the world persecuting us, holding us down as well. But we can also think of how the Lord allows us at certain times in history to enjoy the ease of life. So you can get a little lackadaisical about the Christian walk and say, you know, why is God so significant? Does he really matter? And so the, the world can explicitly push us down, tempt us, but the world can also make it so easy that maybe we don't want the Lord so much and, and maybe we don't really need him and so we can kind of just stand on our own. And so the catechism's going and saying we have to be conscious of these sorts of temptations that surround us. But the last one that it drives home again is our own flesh. Now the catechism's driving home the reality. It begins, if we're left to our own, we're going to stumble. We have the world, we have Satan, and then it goes back to, and ourselves. And so it's that reminder, we, we can't just say, well, the devil made me do it, or the world made me do it, or it was so alluring that I, I, I couldn't resist. The catechism wants us to understand we truly are our own worst enemies. And so if we want to be self-righteous and think we're better than we are, that the catechism is nipping that in the bud and saying that's not the case. We're not very righteous. We're not very wholesome. We're not good. And so we have to be careful in thinking that we're better and stronger than we really are. And so when we think about this, we say, well, how bad can it really be? Well, the catechism, again, doesn't lay out a very positive picture. It says, never stop attacking us. So in terms of our Christian life and our Christian identity, this is saying there's, there's a lot of forces out there desiring to destroy us. I mean, that's a pretty grim picture. The thing about things actually trying to destroy us and ruin us and, and just take us down. But that's what the catechism's telling us. And it's a reminder that this continues to go on and on and on. And we might say, well, you know, why, why did God make this happen? But this is where we have to go back and say, how did we get into this predicament? Adam failed. And we have to recognize that this is a consequence of the fall of sin. That we fundamentally desire to rebel against God and we're content to do it. And so this, this request in the catechism isn't doing this to overwhelm us or, or depress us or make us think that life is futile. It's saying this is why there's a very important request that Christ instructs us. We are a sinful people. We do not do anything that brings glory and honor to God in and of ourselves. We are a people who are content to rebel against the Lord. So we turn to Peter. And I thought Peter's appropriate here for a lot of reasons. Peter being the, the disciple who's sort of just boisterous, says what's on his mind and doesn't really, at least how it's presented in the Gospels, give a whole lot of thought. It just 
something pops in his brain, comes out his mouth, and you can imagine the disciples kind of looking at Peter, waiting for him to say the thing they're thinking, but don't dare say it. And that's kind of who Peter is. But one of the things we learn about Peter is, is he's very zealous. You know, he's the one that takes a sword and he's willing to go to war for the Lord, but he's also one that's not very consistent because he's willing on the one hand to draw a sword and fight against an experienced soldier, but he's also one who denies our Lord three times. So Peter understands on the one moment being very zealous and literally moments later being rather cowardly. And Peter is one who also, when we look at the Gospels, really wrestles with, with the glory of the kingdom, wanting to know when this kingdom's coming in its fullness, when, when are we going to put down those other people? When are we going to enjoy Jerusalem as it ought to be? He's certainly one of those disciples that's pushing Christ for those answers. And that's where it's important when you understand how Peter begins his letter. He begins his letter to those who are members of the dispersion. We're those who are the members of basically an exile. We are those in a situation where we are not in a time of victory, but we're in exile, like Israel, outside the land. That's where Peter places us. And so Peter is addressing something that's rather profound because he's writing to Christians in Asia Minor. These are not necessarily Jewish Christians. Some say, well, these are Jews in a dispersion. And so he's writing to primarily Jewish synagogues that are made up of Jewish individuals. I think that's reading a lot into the text that's not there. The, the more important implication, or I think the more likely implication, is these are Gentiles who have been converted and are now asking a question. Here I am following this God who has been raised from the dead, supposedly conquered death itself, uh, has been raised, and all these powers come against us. What is this religion? What, what is this tradition? How can this be true? And so we, we have to understand that, that Peter's writing to a group of people that are wrestling with real-life issues. Uh, persecution's not a hypothetical thing for these recipients. They really are dealing with the reality that they may lose property, they may lose their lives, bad things may happen to them. And so they're really wrestling. Where is God in the midst of this? Uh, how do we get through this? Is this Christianity real? What do we make of all these things? And so as Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion, think about that greeting. Right there, he's saying, yes, you're dispersed, you're like Israel and the foreign nations, but you're elect. In other words, this isn't accidental that God didn't somehow arbitrarily decide to do something. That this is a reminder that as his people are scattered throughout the world, God still sees us, he has chosen us, his hand is still upon us. But Peter wants us to also understand that in terms of this dispersion, it's not a time of victory. It's a time of suffering, a time of trial, a time of testing our faith, seeing what we're made of. And as our faith is being tested, he reminds us in 2 verse 11 to live and to be exhorted as sojourners and exiles. In other words, we have to consciously see ourselves as sojourning through this world. 
Now in America, I, I don't know if persecution is necessarily hypothetical. We, we can see it sort of creeping up and more examples of it. We're not in a situation like Peter, but certainly we can see by and large uh, in America that the more of the temptation would be life is pretty easy. There's a lot of things that we can do. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities and so there's sort of that pulling away from Christ in that sense. So this is just as relevant for us. And, of course, I, I do think there, are some, there is some evidence that there's some different types of persecution that may be coming our way and maybe not. I mean, I, I don't know. But the reality is this is what, as we read this, we need to put this in the understanding who we are. Sojourners. Our fundamental anchor point is heaven. That's what Peter wants us to understand. 1 Peter 1 verse 7, at the beginning of this letter, he wants us to understand that our faith is being refined. So when he tells us in 2 verse 11, live as exiles and sojourners, 1 verse 7, understand, when these trials come, don't think this is some sort of an accident by the hand of God, or he's let his hand off you. He's saying, as the Lord's bringing you through these trials, again, through the valley of the shadow of death, right? It's not around, through. That the Lord is working his purpose in our lives. He's weaning us off this world, weaning us off the comforts of this age, and forcing us and compelling us once again to rely on him. And so as the catechism is telling us the world is against us, Peter's affirming this. There's no doubt as Peter writes this, it means we ourselves can distract us, to distract ourselves from the very goal and to have that orientation. When we go on now and we turn to, to our verses of concern, as we put this in the context, we look at 5 verse 5 and, and 5 verse 6, we understand the, the reality of who we are. But there's a call for us how we live. 5 verse 5, we conduct ourselves in the humility before the Lord. And as we conduct ourselves in this humility, it means we're coming before the Lord, understanding we don't have it all figured out. As it's emphasized again in verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So this is that reminder. We, we have to be conscious and understanding that the Lord is continually shepherding us. He has not abandoned us. But notice how verse 6 also ends. Peter wants us to say, but remember, the Lord's also going to exalt you in his particular timing. So it's not just suffer, 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 and that's just it. Life is hopeless, it's meaningless, and that's it. Peter's saying, understand, there, there's a purpose of this. God's working out his, his desires for us. He's shepherding us in his providence. And ultimately, we are going to share in the full glory of heaven as we taste it in the spirit and the power of faith. But as he goes on, he tells us in terms of this life, the very reality of who desires to destroy us ultimately. Verse 8, your adversary, the devil. Now we hear this language of the devil. It's presented as you can find in the Psalms from time to time about the enemies that the psalmist being presented as a lion or wild beasts that seek to devour and destroy. And that's how the devil's presented. He's going around from place to place looking for opportunities to destroy us, devour us. Uh, this is not a, a very nice picture. It's 
presented as, as swallowing down blood is, is really what's going on. I mean, this is, this is a, a creature that is bloodthirsty and, and will stop at nothing to destroy. So this is a rather grim picture of, of what her life is. And we think about, well, what are examples of Satan? How, how bad is he? Well, we certainly made allusion to him at the Garden of Eden this morning, how he challenges the Word of God, tries to hold out a more meaningful existence by sinning. We think of Job, uh, the opening of Job, and Satan comes to God two times, uh, makes a, a wreck of the guy's life. And, and that's not enough. You know, he's already taken so much from Job, and he just can't touch Job. And he says to the Lord a second time, well, the only reason he loves you is you bless him with so much. Well, you already took all his stuff away, and he still loves God and hasn't cursed him, even though his wife told him to. Still hasn't. Satan's like, well, let me touch his flesh. Let me touch his hand. Then we'll destroy him. And so you understand how fierce Satan is. He, he truly wants to harm, destroy. There's there's no mercy, there, there's no grace, there, there's nothing. We think about the picture of Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3. What does Satan do there? He takes the role of the accuser, bringing prosecution against Joshua the high priest, showing how the Lord's plan of redemption has failed. The priest isn't worthy, the, the priest is a slob, the priest isn't prepared. Look at the mess that he has made. How can this man rebuild the temple, right? Those are the things Satan's saying. That's the implication of it. Joshua has nothing to say. He, he's a high priest, and he's like, yeah, you're, you're right. Everything you're saying is absolutely true. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be here. And it's the angel of the Lord who says, I will take his sins upon me. And so you, you see how Satan truly is consistent in a very bad way. He truly desires to devour, to destroy. Blood-swallowing, evil uh, destruction that's presented here. And he's trying to do this to destroy God's people. And so Peter is saying to the church, when you're facing these temptations and you're facing what's going on, understand, Satan doesn't want you to enjoy life. He doesn't want you to enjoy your Redeemer. He doesn't want you to enjoy your life in Christ. He doesn't want you to enjoy and to truly cherish the Word of God. He doesn't want you to enjoy anything that God has given you. He wants you to be discontent. He wants you to be angry. He wants you to, to not love God in any way, and he wants you to dwell in sin. That's what Satan's holding out. And so Peter, when he's talking about Satan prowling around, talks about the government uh, being a, the, this oppressive force. We can certainly see where Satan is working behind the scenes and that, certainly in Daniel and other places, and as Peter's presenting him. So there are these forces that the catechism is absolutely understanding and that Peter's affirming. This is a reality, a rather bleak existence if we just stay here. But the catechism doesn't want us to stay here. Because if we stay here and just let our minds stay here, it's really not much of a reason to be a Christian, is there? I mean, it just sounds like it's only a downside, it's just misery, it's just more suffering, and uh, there's nothing enjoyable. 
But the Catechism wants us to understand while we are those who are prone to wander, prone to struggle, Satan desires to destroy, that we still have an advocate and there's still hope. Because we might say, well, what can we do? What's the hope that we have in this life? I mean, this is overwhelming if we're honest to think you have this creature that before the foundations of the world, when, whenever the angels fell, whenever that was, has been basically honing his skills of temptation and destruction, how can we stand up to such an individual, such a creature, such a thing? Well, as the Lord goes on, and as the Catechism reminds us, that the Lord wants us to understand that he is the one who makes us strong. As we pray to our Lord, it's tempting to say, well, you know, I can always pray. And I always go back to the example of Jacob when he sets up his family. And it's an important story because it does teach us something, doesn't it? First, he aligns his family, he sets it up so Leah and, you know, the, her little concubine children and all those other children he doesn't love so much, they're first, and the little slaves are first, and then Leah and her kids are next. And then he has a, the children aren't so loved um, by Rachel. And then he has the ones that he really cherishes and loves. And, and the implication of that is as he meets Esau, Esau goes to war. You have your front line basically holding them back so you can grab your cherished family and you can retreat, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I always wonder what was it like to meet with Leah and, and those children after he got through this okay when, when they know basically you're just dangling them out for, for bait and fodder. I mean, they, they really don't matter. But what does he do after he arranges a family? Then he prays, right? And so he has it backwards. And that's what the catechism's reminding us. Our, our temptation is to come up with our strategy. Okay, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to work this out? And we see Jacob doing that very same thing. It's being honest with who we are as humans. And the catechism's saying, where do we start? Well, we should start with prayer. That's where we need to start. We need to call out to God and we need to explain what's going on. Not that God's ignorant and he needs us to tell him, but what is this doing? It's making us part of that angelic heavenly council, if you will. We're, we're being aligned with his purpose. We're saying, Lord, you are the defender. You are the protector. This is what I see. Here are my enemies coming against me. Lord, you need to defend me and protect me. I can't do this. I am too weak. That's the point of what the catechism is teaching us. That we're not to see ourselves as a bunch of defeatists when we have these enemies that come against us. The catechism is saying, be realistic. There are enemies that are out there. But also understand where your victory is found in Christ Jesus. And so this is where we wonder, well, how do we really know that we're not going to be defeated and we truly will be victorious and that Christ really has overcome? I mean, that's, that's a real question that we can ask. How do we know we will win? Well, it's not that we're going to win in ourselves. That's abundantly clear. But where we find our victory is in Christ because we understand this tension. And what does Peter remind us and exhort us to do? Well, as we are those who walk in Christ and as we walk under him and find our life in him, we know that it is our Lord who keeps our inheritance. We know that he is the one who is going to exalt us, 
But in the context of verse 8, if you notice, I skipped around to the scary part. But Peter exhorts us to do something that is not the first thing we want to do in the midst of a trial or a struggle. Be sober-minded. Now, the call of this is to be clear-headed, uh, to be focused, uh, to, to not be under the influence of anything. So it's, it's driving home the reality of where someone may be inebriated and they're not thinking clearly, or someone's incredibly tired, they're not thinking clearly. So what Peter's saying is have a clear understanding. So we have a clear understanding, and then he tells us to be watchful. Uh, this is really just being alert, aware of what's going on around us, uh, being vigilant as we face what's before us. This is just basically guarding or, or being in a situation where you understand there's danger, but you're, you want to be aware of all the danger. You're not overwhelmed yet, but you're alert. You understand something may happen. That, that's your stance. So you think of yourself as a guard in a guard tower. You, you understand somebody may come against you. You don't really know necessarily when or where, but, but you want to be alert and, and know what's going on and where this force may be coming from. That's what we're being told to do here. And we say, well, why do we need to be alert? He goes, oh, well, it's because Satan is the enemy who wants to devour you. Now we say, okay, so, so what do we do with this? How do we find life and hope in this reality? As the devil desires to devour us, how do we know that we will persevere? Well, as I already mentioned, the Lord is the one who is going to exalt us. Verse 6. So the Lord is the one who is working out his purpose. We need to remember that. Verse 7. Casting all of our cares and anxieties upon the Lord. Now, when we hear this, we have this promise that goes back to Psalm 55, verse 22. That's really what Peter's drawing on here. And it's one of those things, you have to understand, Peter knows this firsthand. You think about Peter after denying our Lord three times in the uncomfortable breakfast that's recorded for us in John's gospel. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me, right? Three times makes the point. You denied me three times, do you love me? And you can imagine that Peter knows the connection. Christ doesn't need to make it more explicit. And Christ says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, care for my people, basically. So the Lord's saying, listen, Peter, you stumbled, you fell, you messed up, you were humbled. I'm restoring you. Here you are. So Peter understands who the Lord is. So when he tells us to cast our anxieties upon the Lord, he's recalling for us language from Psalm 55, 22. And it's the assurance of Israel and thinking about their situation and the struggles that the psalmist has. And it's, it's language that recalls for us significant events where one casts their cares upon the Lord and then the Lord sustains, so the Lord upholds because he cares for you, as he says here. Other translations or wording of this is sustains you. It's the assurance where Nehemiah even recounts the history of Israel, where Israel, in the midst of their testing of the wilderness, again, sojourn, exile, wilderness, those themes, 
Nehemiah recounts in the midst of the wilderness, God sustained his people in a situation where there is nothing that sustains life in that environment in and of itself. But nevertheless, the Lord sustains his people. We think of how overwhelming it must have been where you have Israel sojourning, wondering where the Lord is. Psalm 55, calling out to God and then being assured that the Lord is the one who will ultimately sustain and exalt. So when Peter writes this to the church, he is saying to us, there is nothing you are going to say to God that is going to shock him. There is nothing that is going to go beyond what his grace can cover that is going to shock him. There is nothing beyond the redemptive power of Christ that is going to overwhelm him. He's going to say, boy, I didn't take that into account. I don't know if we can cover that. And so Peter is saying, when you have these moments of doubt and struggle, he's saying, clear your head. Think about the promises of the gospel. Rehearse them. Think about the story of the Exodus and all hope against hope, Israel against the Egyptians and the Red Sea and the Lord delivering them. Israel wandering the wilderness for 40 years. How are we ever going to get into the land? And yet they take the land. Again and again, we have these instances in covenant history as we rehearse these things in our mind. We see that when we are found and grounded in Christ and in the Lord, we are those who are truly more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And so Peter is saying, while it's overwhelming to think about potential persecution. It's overwhelming to think about our own struggle in sin and our own temptations. It's overwhelming to think that Satan desires to destroy us. He's saying, put this in perspective. We have Christ. And even in the story of Job, Satan cannot go beyond the boundaries of what God sets. And so when we get to that question of, what does it mean? You know, lead us not into temptation. Well, the thing we have to note, and if anyone asks you this about the contradiction in Scripture with James and the Lord's Prayer as I laid out, it's not a contradiction. Temptation also means testing. So what are we saying to the Lord? Lord, don't test me to a place where I'm going to stumble. Lord, uphold me. Lord, sustain me. Lord, I'm afraid of falling away. Lord, I'm afraid of falling into sin X. Lord, I'm afraid of being distracted by whatever. That's what this is calling us to see, that we're honestly coming before the Lord as his vulnerable people, saying to Christ, I am weak and I need you to sustain me. Notice as we resist him, how do we resist him? Firm in the faith. What is our faith? Well, it's how we take hold of Christ. It's the power that is beyond this age, literally. Understanding that there are others who suffer. Understanding that we have our dominion, our power, as he concludes this in a wonderful way. We have our dominion and power in Christ Jesus. And so Peter is saying, listen, I know what it's like to be tempted or tested and pushed to a point where Satan is, is given permission to sort of wrestle with me. I gave in. I failed. But Peter says, listen to who your Lord is. He's a gracious God. 
who tells you to get back up, to continue to fight the good fight, to walk in the power of faith, and to have a clear understanding of what Christ has done. That as he has gone to the cross after living a perfect life, he has been handed over to hell itself. Think about that. The, the thing that, that we could never get out of, Christ was submitted to, and he emerged triumphant. Hell itself could not hold our Savior. And so Peter is writing to a church that is truly in a situation where they don't know if their faith is worth fighting the good fight anymore. They, they don't know. But the assurance that Peter gives them is your Lord has overcome. Your Lord is the power who will overcome. You will be exalted in Christ Jesus. So when we pray this prayer, we're casting all of our concerns, all of our anxieties, and asking God not to test us beyond what we can bear. Affirming the reality. We are weak. We struggle. We need you to sustain us and to overpower us and to continue to keep us. And so then we leave with that question. You know, if James says God does not tempt us and Christ commands us not uh, or Christ commands us to pray not to lead us into temptation, it's understanding that it's, it's asking God not to put us to the test to such a degree that we stumble and fall. It's coming before him recognizing that he has to fight our battle. And what do we do? Be clear-headed. Be under, understanding of the redemptive promises of God. Understand the power that is present in Christ. As you hear the gospel preached, as you partake of the sacraments, as you understand the richness of who our God is, what are we being refreshed in? The victory of life that is ours in Christ Jesus. So as we pray unto our Lord and we walk by faith, let us not minimize the significance of that power. Let us not rest in ourselves as we are so prone to do, but let us rest in our Lord. Our Lord that even hell could not hold. Hell that could not overwhelm. Hell that could not destroy. He emerged triumphant, securing life for us forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.